Welcome to Poets and Writers today. We're on the road. I'm really on the road. I'm over in Asheville, North Carolina, over at Beaver Dam Creek at the headwaters of Beaver Dam, talking with Jim Stokely and uh, Wilma Dykeman is his mother, was his mother, and is his mother, and we're right here at the old home place, and I am telling you, it is beautiful. And what you're hearing in the background is Beaver Dam Creek. So last uh, series, we were talking about French Broad, and Jim was going into Wilma Dykeman's books, and we were we had briefly gotten into French Broad. So Jim Stokely, welcome back to the show, and let's talk about French Broad. Well, I appreciate being here again, Henry. And uh, we were talking about, uh, we ended the last show talking about her first uh, published book, The French Broad, 1955, part of the Rivers of America series. And it's with this book that she really drove a progression in, in, in American uh, thought about the relationship of the environment and our economy. Uh, this was the first book, even though it was the 49th volume of the Rivers of America series, it was the first volume that really took pollution seriously. Uh, uh, generally, that, that series wanted to idolize the rivers and make it seem like, uh, you know, the rivers were still in the pristine state that the, the Native Americans knew them, or the Dutch, let's say, with the Hudson River. So with uh, Carl Carmer's The Hudson Volume, uh, no mention of General Electric, no mention of dioxins in the river. I mean, Pete, Pete Seeger, for example, spent his whole life trying to fight that plant. And uh, you, you would have read a whole book about the, the Hudson River and not known a thing about it. So Mother, uh, Mother in, the, uh, in the manuscript that she sent up to Reinhardt had this chapter about pollution. And uh, the publishers didn't want to publish it. I mean, why would you want to dish your main character, your river? And uh, they said, well, if you take that, that chapter out, we'd, we'd be glad to publish the book. And, uh, you know, if you can put yourselves, if any of you has ever wanted to write and be published, this was Mother's chance to get into the big leagues. And uh, uh, she'd been toiling in the, in the vineyards. And, uh, you know, a lot of po folks would have said, sure, do anything you want. I'll, I want a published book. But she, Mother said, no. She said, that, that chapter's got to be in there. She said, I will make a concession to you, I'll call it Who Killed the French Broad, and maybe the readers will think it's a murder mystery. Uh, so <laughs> so, so the, th the chapter stayed in there, and uh, just quickly, the arguments that she made um, for clean water in 1955, by the way, seven years before Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the first argument was that clean water is going to bring tourists, going to bring tourists uh, nature lovers, tree huggers, fishermen, uh, uh, hunters, etc. This was the argument. It was not a new argument. Uh, the progressives, if you can remember Teddy Roosevelt standing on, uh, standing at Yosemite with John Muir, uh, you know, uh, that was that was a tried and true argument. But it was the second argument that really uh, was really new, and that argument was. Um, uh, if you care for clean water and your community cares for clean water, that's going to affect what executives in companies do in terms of placing their plants and their places of doing business. Executives want to bring up their families uh, in communities that care for the environment. Uh, workers uh, appreciate that. And uh, it's, it becomes a virtuous circle. So by that argument, she was, she was saying, this is a way that uh, uh, a culture of caring for the environment 
and economic development work hand in hand. No longer, uh, no longer was it a matter of the old progressive idea of a, a dollar taken from trees goes to economic development and a dollar taken from economic development goes to the environment. Uh, Mother said, let's get away from this uh, closed system. Uh, uh, so she destroyed that way of thinking. So this is a novel in the theme of it uh, well well the, the, the French broad is nonfiction right but but, uh, but uh, in making this argument she uh, you know the progressives are misnamed in a way everybody remembers that 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 photo with Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir at Yosemite mm -hmm. but the progressives were all about saving in a sense the unusual aspects of nature mm -hmm. a big a big ditch called the Grand Canyon a wonderful valley called Yosemite Valley. But what they really thought of the land in the West was navigable rivers to take away what we, the iron ore that we mine and the dams that we dam. You know, for every Yosemite back in the progressive area, there was a Hetch Hetchy where, where you, 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 uh, you fit, still felt that humanity had dominion over nature and needed to dominate and control so this, nature. So this was published in what year? 1955. And she really had to rankle some people. She did, and, she did. And, and, and it, I admire what you said about she stuck to her beliefs in the, and uh, definitely, and the reason I raise this about a novel, because you know, The Tall Woman, we're gonna yes. talk about that yeah. series, but this was basically, you mentioned Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, and you said this came out before. Seven years before. Seven years before. And uh, writers out there, you're listening to Henry McCarthy, Poets and Writers, WEHC today, 94.7. We're talking to Jim Stokely, and we're talking uh, about him and his mother and his family and her books. And I'm here at the old home place, and what you're hearing in the background is you're hearing the creek. So, you know, just uh, turn up your volume a little bit. Now, so French Broad is is definitely one an environmental book, and uh, you go with that a little bit. And then, uh, how many books did she write? Well, she published nineteen. Okay. She wrote a few more. Uh, writers don't get everything they write published. Thank goodness, my goodness. I mean, I wouldn't want to want to read every every word that my mother ever wrote in her life. But uh, nineteen books, pretty good, pretty good record. Well, and right out here next door to us, we're on the front porch uh, of the house here, and. And her little writing place is right out there. That's right. Uh, That's she, right. And she'd go there and she'd write upstairs, I guess. But I, I love, what I love about being here, it reminds me so much of growing up on Roan Mountain and being around the stream. So back to this French broad, the environmental statement, and then we'll hear the other ones. There you go. Uh, well, I mentioned uh, she had really a three-part argument for, for clean water. One was the attract tourists, hunters, fishermen, nature lovers. Second was attract business and that has proved itself out 60 years later in downtown Asheville, New Belgium Brewing, uh, Sierra Nevada. Both of those uh, giant brewing companies uh, started, one started in California, one in Colorado, but they've each got their eastern operations right by the French Broad River and for the exact reason that Mother predicted in 1955. Well now yeah. isn't there Wilma Dykeman Park around there? Uh, uh, there has been to date not one thing named for Wilma Dykeman in Buncombe County, if you can believe it. Uh, however, uh, there have been millions of dollars poured into an, uh, a uh, beautification of the, what is, uh, Asheville calls the River Arts District on, mm, yeah. uh, on both banks of the yeah. French Broad uh, as it passes downtown. And there's a multimodal transportation corridor being built there 
that will carry cars as well as bikes as well as pedestrians uh, and that is going to be called the Wilma Diamond Riverway. So, oh. uh, uh, so you couldn't get a more appropriate, uh, more appropriate uh, name, uh, and uh, and I'm just thrilled that Mother's name is going to be connected with that. But her third argument in the French Broad is uh, the French Broad itself can be a source of clean water, a source of drinking water. Uh, you know, Western North Carolina. And this holds uh, for Southwest Virginia, for East Tennessee, for East Kentucky, et cetera. Uh, rivers begin in these mountains. Uh, there are a dozen rivers that begin, that, that source in, uh, in Western North Carolina. And uh, it's one of the best watered regions in the world. And uh, I'm a little bit worried that uh, what's gonna happen to this water is about what's gonna happen, what happened 100 years ago to the great hardwood virgin forests. Uh, mountaineers saw it as a way to make cash, way to make money, and uh, and my great grandfather and Wilma's grandfather was one of them. He was a timber man, so mother mother was writing almost to expiate a little bit of uh, family sins uh, in terms of uh, how humans think of the environment, how we treat the land. She began uh, probably her greatest pioneering effort was. Uh, recognizing environmental degradation and human degradation. My favorite quote from her is a book that uh, my parents wrote two years after the French Brawl called Neither Black Nor White. It addressed the, the race question in America uh, two years after Brown versus Board of Education. They traveled all over the South asking people, you know, what they thought about it. And they got, as you might imagine, answers all across the political spectrum. But in that book, Mother, uh, in trying to figure out why, uh, trying to say why they made this journey, her quote is, as we have misused our richest lands, we have misused ourselves. As we have wasted our bountiful water, we have wasted ourselves. As we have diminished the lives of one whole segment of our people, we have diminished ourselves. So she recognized how we treat the land, how we treat water, reflects how we treat other people. And uh, uh, that may have been her greatest pioneering effort. I mentioned Rachel Carson. Uh, you know, you might think, well, she would, she just stewed. You know, when, when that book came out in 62, all about DDT and its effects and got so famous, you know, here she had written seven years earlier and she just jealous and uh, she, she just hated Rachel Carson. Nothing could have been further from the truth. She had a very influential co column at, in, the, in the Knoxville News Sentinel and uh, she used that column uh, to praise Rachel Carson and to say everybody needs to read this book. And uh, she she became a real environmental uh, environmental advocate. No matter where where the caring came from, she was for it. All right. Now that's the French broad. A little bit of it. Yeah. And I appreciate uh, Jim Stokely and uh, your work and interest in in the environment, and certainly a crucial issue as as we've talked about. Now, a lot of young women of my era were influenced by the tall woman. And I know that this is brought up. Somebody asked me, said, well, uh, who, how did, what did you think of Wilma Dykeman? What was your concept? And one of my first reactions was she reminded my, me of my mother. And then she had written about the tall woman. Talk about the tall woman. Well, the tall woman uh, was a real a real achievement. Uh, it came out in 1962. I can remember seeing Mother being interviewed on the Today Show. 
Uh, back then, Appalachian studies wasn't even in existence. Uh, Appalachian literature was not uh, was not known as such. Basically, you had Thomas Wolfe, and you had some uh, some early folks in eastern Kentucky who were writing some things, James Still and Jesse Stewart. But you didn't have a a whole a whole uh, school of literature called Appalachian literature. Well, Mother is now known as kind of the mother of Appalachian studies. She uh, she contributed probably the first formal article on it as part of a Ford Foundation study in 1960. She would go around to workshops at Berea College. She was on the board of trustees of Berea for 30 years. Uh, uh, Heinemann Settlement School, uh, you know, Radford, Emory and Henry. I mean, you, you, you name the college in the region, uh, she was there. And she was always talking about Appalachian literature. And uh, uh, well, I didn't know about this Berea connection, but there's two things my wife will love. And Patty listens to all my shows. Uh, most of the time I pressure to do it, but one is her father went for one year to Berea yeah. College and then had to drop out, and that's a connection there. And then my wife is a big fan of Tall Woman, so I just there you wanted go. to put that's that in wonderful. there. So go uh, ahead now. Uh, what really rankled Wilma was the stereotyping of Appalachia. Uh, probably the worst stereotyping uh, came about in the 30s and uh, 40s uh, with the comic strips, Little Abner and Snuffy Smith. And that meant that every day, everybody across the country would get this idea cemented in their head that that the Southern Mountaineers were Snuffy Smith, the Southern Mountaineers were Little Abner and Daisy Daisy May and uh, what have you. So uh, she she said, you know, I'm gonna write a I'm gonna write a novel with a mountaineer as a hero. And then she thought about it for a few days. She said that hero is going to be a heroine, uh, going to be Lydia McQueen, and uh, she drew. As I mentioned uh, uh, in the last show, uh, she had she had already tried to write a novel called The Valley, based upon her experiences growing up in Beaver Dam Valley, just north of Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, well, she matured that that manuscript into uh, and changed it into this novel that became The Tall Woman, and it, it's been a bestseller. It's gone through forty printings. It's affected more people than I can count. I mean, you just wouldn't believe the letters that. Uh, that uh, mainly women, young and old, you know, wrote in some men, uh, you know, saying that it, cha it changed their life. Uh, but uh, it, uh, she, she wrote it. Uh, she halfway wrote it to counter the Appalachian stereotype. So this is all about a woman who is a is is nothing uh, nothing out of out of the ordinary. Uh, she's just a woman with a lot of energy and strength and integrity, and she fights for a school in her community of Thickety Creek, uh, you know, in the mountains of North Carolina. Well, listeners, we're talking with Jim Stokely and talking about uh, Wilma Dykeman's books today on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7. Back to the tall woman, the strength of character in there. And these are mountain people. I want to make that clear. Maybe I, I asked my brother, who's in assisted living now, when we came off the road, we wanted to be referred to as mountain people, not hillbillies. Do you, you understand? We Now, we didn't really appreciate the term hillbilly, but, but this mountain woman is struggling, and this is after the Civil War and during the Civil War and trying to feed her family, right? That's exactly right. And, uh, yeah, I don't like to use the word. Uh, I don't like to use the H word. Uh, some people, a lot of, a lot of folks from this region uh, use that word uh, laughingly. You know, and they think they've got something on the rest of the world. Well, I'm here to tell you, the rest of the world and internationally, 
they have this stereotype of, uh, uh, of, of Southern Mountaineers and it's, it's not pretty. And I think it has to do with a dark place in human nature. You know, all of us have to have somebody to look down on. And uh, that's why the comic strips came out in the 30s. I mean, it's not a, none of this stuff is a coincidence. Uh, so uh, in the 1930s, everybody was hurting with the depression. And lo and behold, little Abner comes out and it's almost a relief for a lot of people that say, well, goodness gracious, I'm not a barbarian. You know, I'm, uh, I've at least got some morals and uh, I've, I've at least, uh, you know, work, work a little bit. So, you, uh, you know, to the extent that humans have to be able to look down on somebody and think that they're not at the very bottom of the totem pole, that, that's kind of... But uh, that book, Tall yeah. Woman, took us, and that was published in 1962. 62. And, and people was, are still reading it. it well, it's an inspiration. It. I yeah. was uh, going over it uh, two or three days ago there you go. and thinking about the strength of that. And by the way, your mother's book on French Broad, I mean, that just nails it. And now I'm not going to yeah, get off yeah, on the yeah, testimony, no, but you know where I'm coming from, Jim Stokely. Now, uh, what I'm going to throw this in there, listeners, because uh, a number of my listeners have read Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Yeah. You're uh, going to ask me what Wilma would have thought of that? Except, well, whatever, go for it. She would have uh, not liked it. She would have not liked it. She would have honored the uh, personal story, the personal family story, but she would have been appalled at... Uh, just because you have a an extraordinary personal family story to set yourself up as an expert on Appalachia and uh, uh, what the people do and why they do it and why they've been forced to do certain things, it's just not called for. And, uh, you know, Appalachia has been more or less an internal colony of, uh, of the eastern seaboard, uh, you know, for a couple of centuries. Well, and, let, me, let me jump in on this, Jim, this yeah. part of it, because Mitchell County, you know, this is... Uh, you know, we're talking uh, Asheville, and then we're talking Yancey County. Yeah. And then uh, we're talking Mitchell County, there you which go. has the reputation of being about as independent people as and they all there are, you as you know. But uh, so talk a little bit about uh, your mother's uh, people. Were your, your, your grandmother was from right around these mountains, right? She was. Uh, my grandmother was uh, Bonnie Cole Dykeman. She was a Cole. And... Uh, uh, her father was William Alfred Cole, this timber man that I referred to uh, earlier. And uh, Wait, was she a teacher? Uh, was Bonnie, she... Bonnie was not a teacher, but her mother, William Alfred Cole's wife, Loretta Ballard Cole, was a teacher in a Presbyterian settlement school in the, in the area. And her father, John Henry Ballard, was a famous preacher in the region over in okay. Rims Creek. And... Uh, uh, just quickly, a story about him, and the, when the Civil War broke out, you know, a lot of lot of the folks in these mountain counties were did not want to secede from the Union. They had, their ancestors had spent had spent their lives and blood fighting at Kings Mountain and in the Revolution Absolutely. to make the Union. Absolutely. They didn't want to secede from the Union, so there were a lot of uh, Unionists here, and and the Ballards were were two of them. And at age at at age seventeen. I think maybe 16, uh, John Henry Ballard gets drafted by the Confederate Army, goes down to Camp Patton in uh, downtown Asheville, and they say, take the oath. Guess what? This 16-year-old, surrounded by armed Confederate soldiers, refuses to take the oath. They say, well, uh, the quartermaster says, well, I know his dad. I like his dad. 
He says he'll change his mind overnight. Give him a rifle. They thought they'd give him a rifle, get him excited. And they put him in a tent with another young fella. And uh, he said uh, the next morning he'll take the oath. Well, next morning never came because about, about midnight, he and his tent mate went west, took a long walk west across East Tennessee to Camp Dick Robinson in Southern Kentucky and joined up with the Union Army. So, I mean, that just gives you an idea. Well, that's these mountain people. And, you know, as they like to say back in the day, that over in Mitchell County, they shot both sides. You know, there you they, go. they didn't take it personal one way or another. But uh, yes, and that's uh, that's why the Civil War is so devastating in the in these mountain counties because it, it was literally brother against brother, sister against sister, yes. family against family. Yes, and uh, you saw a lot of poverty coming out of the coming out of the mountains later. But mother followed up the tall woman with a sequel uh, called The Far Family in 1966, and that took. The, the hero of the Farr family was actually Lydia McQueen, the tall woman's granddaughter, Ivy Thurston. And uh, uh, Robert Morgan, the great uh, Western North Carolina mm, writer, yes. the, the Farr mm. family is one of his 10 favorite novels of the mountains. Uh, and the reason is that it, 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 it destroys the stereotype that these are isolated mountains, that people can't go anywhere in these mountains. And mm -hmm. uh, the Farr family is just, uh, they're my family, my friends, no matter how far they've wandered. And as far as family, uh, the main character was was modeled on her uncle, my great uncle. I knew him well, Andrew Jackson Cole. Had a little bit of a problem with the bottle, and uh, he was the most one of the most charismatic people I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he he uh, he went all over the country. Uh, he 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 helped build Fontana Dam. He he, uh, the TVA dams, he went up to New Jersey, helped build mm -hmm. some suburbs up there. He was blue collar all the way, but he was really charismatic. And uh, Lillian Smith, uh, he's the protagonist of this novel, uh, Clay Thurston and Lillian Smith reviewing that novel said that Clay Thurston is one of the most complex characters in American literature. Now this is fa the Far Family. The Far Family. One of the most complex characters, characters in American, American literature. I've got to go back and read that again because yeah. I love complex characters. I, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm going to Mark uh, Twain. Listeners have heard me out in Hannibal, Missouri on this show and so on. And I was thinking about Twain, you know, he said, uh, I think he fought in the Civil War for a little time, about three weeks, and then he left, and he said, that's why the South lost. <laughs> well, he's got a, I love Twain. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, there's a theory that he was conceived in Tennessee. His uh, parents lived in uh, the Cumberland yes. Plateau of Tennessee yeah. in yeah. Over Overton County, sure. and uh, sure. then they moved to Hannibal, Missouri, about mm -hmm. when sure. his mother Florida, was carrying. Florida, Missouri, and then to Hannibal. So, but, for, unfortunately, she didn't. They didn't. St I wish they had stuck around for ten oh, months. Oh, absolutely. And they had that land. He always thought, you know, his father left him. But anyway, we're talking on poets and writers today. WEHC ninety point seven coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus with Jim Stokely, and we're talking about his mom, Wilma Dykeman, his father, and everyone else. All right, now let's get back to the books briefly, because the uh, excellent producer here is watching the show, Jim. Oh, and yeah. Time. Go ahead. No question. Uh, well, again, out of those 19 books that Mother mother wrote, uh, uh, we talked about the, the French bra, the tall woman, the far family. This was in the, in the 50s and 60s, uh, neither black nor white, about the race situation. So she was about at the height of her career in the mid-60s. Uh, she wrote a third novel. I had referred to it back in our previous program. That was the story of, uh, of my dad's being rooked out of, uh, out of this uh, canning company. 
called Return the Innocent Earth. We thought that that was going to make her a star, a real national star. And uh, unfortunately, back in 1973, uh, the, uh, uh, the New York Times book review sort of monopolized uh, the trade, and they just blew it off uh, with a little small satirical paragraph and just didn't understand anything about it. So that was a real disappointment. Uh, but Mother went on to write a book about uh, a pioneer uh, for birth control. Uh, she put a stake in the ground for, for birth control. To, to uh, She really believed that uh, every person who's born on this earth needs to be cared for. Uh, and birth control, uh, in her mind, was one of many tools that could assure that. And she went on to... Uh, to write some National Park Service uh, manuals. She helped teach uh, rangers and- And she taught uh, at the University of Tennessee exactly. I did, for years. She taught, she, taught, yeah. she, taught at, uh, she taught Appalachian literature and creative writing at the right. University of Tennessee, one of the most popular teaching. She was a natural teacher. Yeah, and they just, you know, they gave her tenure. I love that story. I had a little rougher yeah. time. Yeah. I had a split yeah. vote on mine. It was- Yeah, generally, generally you have to work, uh, you know, work for a number of years <laughs> to be associate, number work for a yes. number of years to be tenure. One Tuesday, they just decided as a faculty, they said, well, now we know that Wilma doesn't have a PhD, but we're just going to make her full professor. So they that? voted to make her full professor. Uh, she, and then she funded her retirement through her speaking. Uh, she was Absolutely. an inspiration. She was a keynote speaker, uh, inspirational speaker. She remember her acting. She wanted to be an actor. Her acting training taught her how to command the stage, man. And she could add absolutely. All right, Jim, we've talked a great deal about, uh, your wonderful relatives and, of course, your mother and your father. Now, I want you to talk a little bit as we wind up the show today about yourself. Talk a little bit. Tell us what you've been up to. Well, I, as I mentioned, I grew up in East Tennessee in Cock County. It was a wonderful place to grow up. Uh, wonderful. Uh, I wouldn't wouldn't trade it for the world. But I ended up going to uh, Phelps Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, and then Yale University in uh Worked for a while as a freelance writer and then decided to go back to business school, went to Stanford Business School, and uh, from that spent 25 years in the corporate world uh, in, as a human resources professional. So uh, I basically looked at that as a way to make a little bit, little bit of money, uh, but I also looked at it as a way to get material for writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, lo and behold, after I took early retirement in uh, 2008, the next day I started writing a quarter of a million words of uh, fiction. And uh, that's been my goal. I've always found that poetry and uh, uh, nonfiction has come mm -hmm. easy, but I've always wanted to write great long fiction mm -hmm. and I just never quite done it yet, but I'm still working at it. So you have children too, don't you? you Got have... two, two children, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a daughter and a son, and uh, really proud of both of them. Uh, the daughter's uh, fluent in Spanish, living up in the Boston area and working for a, a good microfinance company called Acción. And my son, is uh, he's headed up to Manhattan as we speak. He's, gonna, he's going to uh, New York University uh, Stern School of Business. So, And I know you're working actively to preserve this place here where we are today. That's correct. And does this have a certain name? Like, do you just call this? This is the, the Wilma Diamond House and okay. Grounds. Uh, right. And uh, the reason it's called the Wilma Diamond House and Grounds is that, is that based on what we're saying, it shouldn't come as a surprise. The grounds are as or more important than the house. The house is a modest house. Uh, Mother used to say it's a modest house, but I know every inch of it, you know, and uh, 
just uh, been re really glad to be here, Henry. Well, uh, Jim, thank you for being on the show today, Jim Stokely. And we this is uh, the part of a two-part series that we've done on the show. And uh, one of the other people that we've done a two-part series on is Pat Conroy. So listeners out there in the valley and around the world, this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. Do not be afraid to stay or still away. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening. The crops are all in and the peaches are rotten. The oranges are packed in the creosote dumps They're flying them back to the Mexican border To save all their money, then wade back again My father's own father, he waded that river Other.